0: Hi there, welcome to an interview with Lattice Training, and today we have, with myself, Tom Randall, James Pearson, uh, who sat on the sofa down in the Lattice headquarters with me, and James is over visiting from France with his wife, Caro, and uh, I thought this would be a really good opportunity to get you sat down and talk about, I think there's a lot of things that we can talk about today. Um, Sure. I think we've got to be careful not to talk about too many random things today. Try (laughs) and keep on topic. Yeah, we'll try and keep focused. but for for anyone who doesn't know uh, James, and I think that's going to be a relatively small number of people, you are who sort of flattering. And like, I'm going to say lots of good things about you now, and I've known you for a long time. But you can say some bad things too.
1: I can take it. I've learned to take bad things over the years.
0: I'll, I'll get a few in. Don't worry. Um, is James is uh, I think really one of the foremost trad climbers in the world. Um, he's done. He's repeated and established a lot of the hardest trad routes anywhere in the world, including some really hard uh, repeats of other people's routes, 9A sport routes. Um, At the time, he was flashing some of the very hardest boulders um, around V13 um, back in 2008 or so. And all the way through his climbing career, he's been often right at the forefront and the edge of uh, trad climbing in particular, uh, whether it's repeats or first ascents. And I think it's going to be really fascinating talking to James about what's behind his uh, approach, his strategy, his mindset around this. And I think James, you know, all the way from when you were 17 years old, climbing the zone, which was a really hard grip route, E9, all the way through to how old are you now? 35.
1: Five, I think. I just turned 35,
0: yeah. Yeah, so it's like 18 years later, you've just repeated one of the very, very hardest trad routes in the world, Tribe, over in Italy. And that's littered along the way with E9s, E10s, ground-up E10s, E11 repeats, all the way along. And I think that's a really unique thing, because it's such a big block of time where you've been consistent.
1: Yeah, relatively so. I mean, there's definitely been ups and downs um, along the way, but... Yeah, I like to think actually, I, I almost think, feel like it's still going up, which is really strange and something I think, especially two years ago, I would ne- thought I'd never be saying. Mm. Um, but there's something pretty, pretty crazy, pretty strange happened over the last couple of years, and I'm definitely really excited to see where it leads.
0: Okay, well let's let's go let's re- rewind back a little bit and go back to some of the early years, and I was. I think I noticed you really early on when I like, was reading the climbing magazines and I saw photos of you doing stuff like um, Equilibrium, for example. Yeah. Um, there was that kind of iconic photo of you looking freezing cold with a <laughs> you know, really beanie cold, on man? and leggings under your jeans. Um, and it was mainly
1: all the spectators on that day that were really cold. I, I definitely made them, I punished them that day. Yeah, it was miserable yeah. for everybody. But. But, but you'd essentially
0: climbed one of the very hardest trad routes in the world, five years into climbing at that stage yeah. you, you know you were, you were really uh, quite young so what...
1: less um i think technically i, I started around a lot about like 15 just turning i think yeah my first kind of serious days climbing were around about my 16th birthday and equilibrium i just turned 19 yeah so a little bit a little bit less than that but um
0: so that route dangerous 8b plus ish 8b who knows Some around that kind of number it's really hard
1: to grade grit roots isn't it and i'm actually probably struggling more and more with it because i've got so much more experience in other things now i'm really i figured the more experience you'd get elsewhere the the easier it would be to quantify these things but actually it becomes more and more complicated because grit's such a such a peculiar particular rock type Mm. um It's it's the kind of thing where you can you can float up it on one try and then spend the next day falling off all all the moves. And actually that was kind of that's how equilibrium went. I remember the day before I did it, I I top roped it first try for a warm-up. And I thought, okay, this is on. Yeah. And this is one session in or two sessions? Maybe like two sessions in or something. Uh, called called everybody that I wanted to to be there, either to, to belay for support, to take pictures, take video. Um, and then got to the crag really, really early that morning, and couldn't do individual moves on it. Spent most of the morning trying to to link it again. Couldn't do it. Gave myself this kind of like ultimatum of okay, if I don't do it on the next go, then I'm walking home. Well, not walking home, driving home. Yeah. And um, did it, but by the skin of my teeth. And then found myself in this really awkward situation where I kind of I'd given myself permission to try it, but at the same time it felt so close to to to, to falling. Like uh, I had very, a very minimal comfort zone on the route, and one of the things that I tried to do when I was climbing dangerous routes in the past was to have a, a relatively big comfort zone, and that wasn't the case. And I think, yes, it's one of probably the few times, maybe very, very early routes I did. Like when I was when I was younger than that, I also felt a little bit of pressure from the people around me, not from the people, but from myself, kind of wanting to impress the people around me. Mm. That day on Equilibra, I remember thinking, okay. I've got all these people out here, like I really need to try to at least at least give them a bit of a show, and I thought, worst case, I'm going to go up it, and I'll just fall off the crooks at the bottom, and then we can all go home, and it'll be fine and actually, by some miracle, and, and I, I think equilibrium was probably the first time that I noticed this happening with my climbing when I got on the sharp end when I got on the dangerous side of things, everything seemed to change a little, like I disappear in this little kind of. I don't know bubble of of calm where you know all of the things that I'd been worried about through the day before that ceased to exist. I felt really strong. I felt really solid on the moves, um, and I just managed to go through the 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 the, the crux at the bottom. Before I know it, I was basically lining up for the crux at the top, and I remember thinking, "Oh shit! Like I'm not supposed to be here. How is this going to end?" And then, uh, well, I, I guess if anybody's watched the video of it, you can see I make like a pretty big mistake that should have it should have seen me falling off. And who knows what would have happened in that fall though? It would have been for sure close. And I, by some miracle, managed to hold this really strange position, basically stop the fall mid fall, and, and get back on and climb to the top. And um, and did the route. But I think what was most interesting for me after that was this question about wow, you know, if I can. I've managed to kind of find this almost state of mind to transcend um, into like a, a totally different different place where everything seems perfect and everything seems easy. And wouldn't it be great if you could then move forwards maintaining that somehow state of mind and do all these other cool things? At least that was the concept. Didn't quite work out like that, but... Yeah, yeah, because I think it's, it, was um, a, it was a promising beginning.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting you... you touch on that whole um you know state of mind and you know state management and getting that bubble with hard dangerous trad routes because like i've done quite a few you know riskier trad routes as well and and i know that zone that you can get into for that and i i don't know if you find the same thing but i look back at some of my early experiences of getting into that zone with almost rose tinted glasses of how i'm quite good at it i'm really quite good at it now like i know yeah. how to do it and i see my early experiences and think i knew what i was doing then of how to get into the zone and i see it overly positive but if
1: oh, i no, really no. think back to it i was a bit of a shambles no no i, I think all I, can, over the I can just look back and say that i was a total shambles um for example if we could just take like the first two years so leading up to equilibrium mm. um I feel like Equilibrium was the first time that it really happened well, but it was probably it came with a big surprise. Like a
0: good experience. Yeah, a
1: positive yeah. experience. Even though I, I I made a mistake, but I that kind of that new level uh, or that different mindset allowed me to 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 get through it, luckily. Um, but before that, I was really really bad at climbing <laughs> dangerous routes. I'd have to I'd have to top rope them. I don't know, I'm just gonna throw some random figures out there, but you know, ten, ten, 10 times in a row before I'd feel confident to go for it because I knew as soon as I'd get on the lead, I'd just start shaking and wobbling and basically trying to kill myself, which is really, I thought we always thought this was really strange how, you know, you, you hear often about these fight or flight mechanisms that we have built into us, you know, when kind of sh- everything goes wrong, we, we be- become the, the kind of animal that we're always supposed to be and we mm-hmm. can get ourselves out in or out of dangerous situations. But actually with my climbing, it was really the opposite of that. I'd, I'd be fine on a top rope, and then as soon as I got on the lead, where you'd expect you'd be able to pull harder and, and do harder things, I would just shake and, and get really scared and make terrible mistakes. I, Did you, you have anyone in... that
0: mentored you through that in those no earlier um, times, were you like, Copying the behaviors of other good trad climbers around you Are you doing that in your own little learning bubble essentially?
1: No, I was doing it really very much on my own um, So there was a guy called Tony Simpson who I, cl- I climbed with quite a lot in the beginning um, And if anything Tony was really trying to steer me away from from trad I, I can't remember exactly why I was motivated To get into trad in the first place. It might have been something as simple as just watching hard grit Mm. Realising that some of those places were so close to my to my house, basically that time I was just one hundred percent in love, obsessed with climbing. Like you know when you when you start a new relationship, when you're when you're when you're a kid, you're just completely obsessed by this 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 other being, this this other thing, and climbing was like that for me. I just wanted to to anything anything I could. From climbing, I wanted to take it and kind of wrap myself up in it. And just, you know, I'm guessing you were climbing your house, Everything. outside of your house. But I've been I've been doing that since since a really young age. So even though okay. I technically didn't actually start rock climbing until I was about 15, that was only because I didn't know anybody that climbed. And, okay. um, there was no one in my family or you know close sort of friend network that, that climbed. And so my parents had tried to get me into climbing a few times. Like my dad had taken me to Black Rocks a few times, and you know he's he's there with like like blue polypropylene rope that he found in the garage and he was standing at the top of, I think it was it's railway slab, it's called now, like belaying me up and I was scrambling up that thing when I was really little. We went abseiling a few times like in the woods. I thought that was a separate thing. To, well, it's technically a separate thing to climb but I thought it was like a real a real thing. Just go off going abseiling today. Um, but then finally, yeah, getting into climbing, it was just immediately obsessed with it and you know as soon as i'd meet another climber i just wanted to spend time i'm sure i harassed so many people just (laughs) endless phone calls i started skipping school like anybody i could find the weekday that was going climbing i'd you know i remember taking like two hour bus journeys across the peak district to to the roaches numerous occasions just because i knew a few people over there like andy turner and justin critchlow that kind of had time off during the week um and I think actually I've heard in the past that they were both like, "Oh God, it's James calling again. Like, can you get it and talk to him, or should we just not pick up today?" I think was a real pain in the bum. But I just loved climbing, and so uh, and so w- when I actually started getting in, into trad route, I had I had these people around me that kind of had some experience, but I wasn't you know necessarily just with one of them. Yeah. Really taken under anybody's wing, I was kind of f- jumping around between people. Um, and if one of them told me something like, maybe you don't do that, maybe take your time a little bit more, maybe go do some easier routes, I'd just go and start climbing with somebody that was a, a bit more supportive to what I wanted to do. Ah, Not necessarily okay. supportive in general, but or just a little bit more kind of lax with yeah. <laughs> their concerns for me and my safety.
0: So you laid your own path with people that were going to be complimentary to
1: <laughs> it. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I remember, I think I did, I did like, I soloed, one of the, one of the slabs at Frogart, maybe Long John slab or something like that, one day, but I thought that didn't really count for a trad route because i hadn 't placed any gear. so then I went out and did maybe like an E5 or something stanage, but again, like placing one one cam and the rest of it was was solo and then with my friend Keith, went and did Kaluza Klein. That was my first ever real hard grip route where I, you know I top roped something, I really rehearsed the moves. I kind of felt that transition from moving from the security of top rope onto the sharp end um and it's a funny story i remember climbing going there with keith to try the route and i was on top rope was, was fairly solid and keith was kind of a bit of a shambles on the route and uh, and i remember telling him oh no i don't feel it today like i'm, I'm i don't think i'm going to do it and he was like oh go for it i'm going for it and i remember thinking really you you're going for it okay well is that that's maybe how this thing works yeah and I went for it and did it, and he went for it and, f- and fell off. We ended up in the hospital <laughs> that night, and I was like, "Okay, yeah, maybe you know, maybe this is not how this thing works. Maybe you do need to be a little bit cautious." But then, as soon as I climbed Kaluza Klein, so it was my first E seven, I remember thinking, "Oh wow, you know, E seven—that's that's the beginning of hard grit." I remember feeling like hard grit had this kind of, you know, it, it was bracketed from E seven and up. So I was like, "Well, you know, now I'm a hard grit climber." What else can I do? Equilibrium was the hardest thing at the time, and I thought, well, that's a, you know something that's only there for for real climbing gods. So let's maybe try and find an E nine. That seems like something that maybe mortals can climb. And then I started looking around for basically the the easiest E nine that I could that I could find, and I found the the zone. Um, I remember climbing that. It's protected by I think two tied down sky hooks. Um, so this you- is like a,
0: a for anyone that isn't no, it's a it's a it's a flat gritstone wall. It's about ten meters, twelve meters high, yeah. and it's it's pretty much just over vertical. So like one degree overhanging yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and it's just a it's very very of, blank face, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So it's at Kerber, which has some of the some of the probably the more impressive gritstone routes around these these really big clean cut faces, um, and some really cool looking easier lines like the Peapod. And mm. the zone actually climbs just on the left of the Peapod, and so you've got all these amazing looking routes and then you have the zone which kind of takes a very arbitrary strange line up a really kind of small unassuming piece of rock but it was e9 and that's all i was all i cared about at the time so i remember doing the thing again top roping the thing being really solid on it on on a rope going for it on the day of the lead um it was the first time that i was ever actually getting filmed on, on like a proper proper route so, again, I think now looking back, I had all this pressure I was basically not ready. I went for the leader's thing on a route that you really shouldn't fall off um, and did fall off. <laughs> and by some miracle, the two sky hooks held. Um, I took this giant pendulum onto, onto the hooks. A few weeks later, actually, when uh, Jordan Buys tried to repeat it, which I think he was actually trying to flash it, he fell off onto sky hooks, down climbing from them. It's like a really silly little little fall. Luckily, very, really close to the ground, and the and the hooks ripped off. Yeah. So <laughs> again, at that point, I was like, "Oh wow, I was kind of lucky as well. well." Well, I was surprised you
0: put some of the essentials to put on just because I put four sky hooks on. Yeah, when I did it, I just lined them up in a big line and I think I had like and put two them two
1: stacked hooks, one on either flake, equalized together, and then tied down to the floor. Yeah, so they were about as solid as sky hooks can be, but still come off don't they still and then so i'd I'd fallen off this thing and that should have been enough to you know set alarm bells ringing in anybody but for me it was like oh well well you know rest day and then i got back on it and did it again so then i'd climbed e9 and it was like oh well what's what's next and it was really i guess i've always been like that growing growing up In whatever sport I was doing at the time, I always wanted to try and be as good as I could, as fast as I could. I had no real interest in kind of solidifying my my level, you know, becoming really competent like at a certain level. I just wanted to to go higher and higher and higher. And I and I think realistically, again, this is it's easy to look back with hindsight, but I think realistically, probably whenever I got to the limit in something, instead of deciding to try really hard. And, and work at something I just give up and start trying something new mm. um, so climbing was was good because it felt it felt like something that was very natural to me and so I could make a relatively quick progression through the grades but because it's so complex there's always new new things to learn in different directions um, that's uh, maybe why it was so interesting
0: how much um, what was the split of like obviously in the Peak District we have a lot of bouldering we have a lot of trad I think they're both really yeah. accessible. What was the kind of split that you did between bouldering and trad climbing at that kind of time? Because I think it's fascinating how quickly you went through those grades. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have come across others that have done similar in those early, you know, four or five years, but, but it's rare. Yeah. So, what, what were you doing when you were, you were kind of
1: um. going out? I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to think back now because I was just about to say that it's, it, just before I climbed Equilibrium, I really started to boulder, but that's not true. I'd been pretty much bouldering from the very, very beginnings because when I met Tony Simpson, who I'd already mentioned, um, he was pretty much just bouldering at the time. And so we'd go out together and, and, and boulder around the Peak District. And again, I was just, just obsessed to, to learn and soak up as much information. And um, was on grit rather than, on, ba- on grit, than yeah. limestone. Yeah, limestone, I, I, I don't really think I'd i didn't probably, I probably didn't touch limestone for the first maybe couple of years yeah. is that is that true oh, no that might not be true i think i no, i think i had climbed it no that's not true yeah even when i was really really young i i was looking through the the peak guide peak bouldering guide book i ended up going to places like stony yeah, I'm yeah. thinking this is kind of shitty yeah. <laughs> um down to the tour did some boulders there did my first french 8a sport route which felt like a big milestone but it was basically just a boulder problem with like a little trad route on top of it out of my tree I think yeah yeah I think that was one of my first <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um and so I'd always I'd always been bouldering and I guess that's probably something that helped me make pretty quick progression through those early routes like Calooza and uh, and the zone um and then I climbed knocking on heaven's door and shortly after that I actually went yeah we went to the states for a three-month road trip a load of other climbers from Sheffield and Keith um, and it was on that trip that I really, really got in, into bouldering and started to kind of knuckle down. And it, it was on that trip that I first learned how how far you could progress uh, by by working something and by, you know, really just focusing on the individual moves. Um, and I think that's probably, even to this day, probably the longest siege that I've ever had on, on a particular boulder problem. I did something called the buttermilker um, in the buttermilks. And I think it was that was one of the harder problems around as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I think All at the time. time they were saying eight eight B. We thought it was eight B, but since then there's like a different star or something broke. And now it's more like eight A plus. But it was definitely the hardest thing that I'd ever had ever tried. And I remember the first session not being able to do any move, and then slowly move by move making it happen. But it was like maybe like 10, 10 sessions or something. So it's really amazing how the human body can a, can adapt. Mm. To things, and you can do something that you that seems totally impossible and at a certain point in the not too distant future actually becomes becomes totally possible and coming back from that trip, I definitely felt the strongest physically that i 'd ever been, and that probably led me to try equilibrium because maybe at that point I felt like I was physically ready for it i had I had enough experience or at least I thought I had enough experience with climbing bold roots. Um, and then, with this kind of newfound bouldering strength, maybe it was it was time. And this is still at this stage. You'd you were never going indoors or rarely going oh, indoors. Really, this was, this yeah. was just
0: all outdoors bouldering, always rock. Yeah. No, you know, you know, structured training that we often always, see yeah. as these these days. It was just going climbing, yeah. was not it?
1: I always joke that <clears throat> climbing indoors was something I only did when it rained. Yeah. But actually, when I think back, it rained pretty much probably at least one day in every every two. And so climbing indoors was only something I did when it rained and we'd driven around every other possible crag in the Peak District and tried our best to dry things and tried climbing on the damp rock. And then only then we would go in, indoors. So, yeah, when I when I climbed Equilibrium, I was really very, very rarely climbing indoors. And if I did climb indoors, it would probably only be at places like the school. you know, So just very, very basic climbing on boards. Mm. None of this kind of crazy funky three-dimensional stuff that we see nowadays but probably to be fair you got enough of that on the grits. so climbing on a board really complemented that style yeah um the one thing that it didn't do any good for was basically overall overall fitness and i mean with with we'll probably talk about this later i guess but you can see with everything that then happened after equilibrium i think it was basically based on on that having having no general fitness um, and kind of a very limited understanding of climbing away from the gritstone.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what uh, one, one sort of last thing I want to kind of just touch on with uh, you know our local gritstone bouldering, sandstone climbing, and how this you know leads into people's climbing later on is that I personally think that the, the, that sandstone style, which is more technical, yeah. interesting, a lot more problem solving on it is such a useful form of climbing to put early on in people's climbing yeah. careers. Even if it, um, you could create a version of it that was indoors on blobby holds and really weird technical stuff, I feel like it's something that sets us up as climbers that if we get that early in those first five years, you sort of build a lot off the back of it, don't you? Yeah, I
1: totally, 100% agree. Um, it's, like I, I said before, like gritstone is and sandstone to a certain extent as well, it's such a particular peculiar rock type where there's not really that many holds so you learn to use everything else that you can um, to kind of make your way up the thing and then there's all these other things that you learn from from climbing on gritstone especially from trad climbing and also from climbing in less than favorable conditions let's say that you you learn to be kind of tough and uh and adaptable um but it's i think it is mainly that weird and wonderful style that, that grit has that is The fact that I'm struggling to explain it now probably explains why it's so hard to teach to somebody later, Mm. um, because it's just something that you have to feel. And from all my experience of, well, from from myself, but also mainly from trying to work with other climbers and help other climbers progress, the hardest, most complicated people to teach are always basically like the strongest. If you can take a a kid um, or, and this is not sexist in the slightest, but basically a girl they learn so much faster than strong guys because strong guys have basically strong sporty guys have spent their entire life just relying on muscles and that's all they know how to do and you try to you try to explain them kind of the subtle nuances of standing on their feet and changing their, their body position and really balancing through things and in the beginning because they don't understand it it feels way harder than just grabbing the holds and pulling and they can, it's, I'm not saying never, but it's very, very hard for them to kind of make that transition, almost a regression actually, to, to accept that they need to spend time working on these weird skills um, that sometimes look a little bit like black magic if you don't really understand what's going on, mm. um, to ultimately later on be able to make new progress. And, uh, and so, yeah, like you're saying, if you can learn that as a, as a child, um, or as a v- very early in your climbing career, before you kind of learn to rely on strength and other things, it does. It really sets you up super well. And I was super. I think one of the things that I consider myself most fortunate was to have spent uh, a bit of time climbing with Johnny Dawes when I was really young. Um, even having kind of, uh, I guess you'd call it a, a masterclass with him one day, and then bumping into him at various other places like uh, along the way. And Johnny, I think. His style, whilst you know I, I climbed very differently from Johnny, you kind of look at a lot of the stuff, the kind of weird like jumpy, dynamic um, style that that Johnny has is somewhere in, in, in my own climbing and um,
0: I, think, I think you stood out like that uh, very early on. Well I remember watching footage in your early parts of your climbing career Yeah. And going, whoa what's this one-handed Yeah, like, like, you see on, hand- on, on, on the groove for example yeah. yeah yeah and i think that really blew a lot of people's minds yeah. when they saw that for the first time with those one-handed little skips and stuff and i think the climbing you know co- or, or you know the industry or the status quo was going i, I don't get that yeah. why, why would you do that outdoors but now exactly i think most people That's like, it's funny isn't it yeah? well i mean i've yeah. seen a, a triple clutch in a competition where someone's you know moved between multiple holes yeah, and, and like, it is the easiest it. way yeah and they get that but back then it's, it's like you've got four,
1: you've got four limbs why not use them all and and you're like well sometimes it's easier if, if you don't and johnny really really helped me to yeah. say, understand that i don't understand it even today but i'm still i understand the the benefits that it can have even if i don't understand the actual magic of it in, in itself um and i think so i took the things that johnny taught me, and I was really lucky, I think, to, to climb with Johnny quite early in my career, and also be very, very short when I climb with Johnny, which is a huge, huge disadvantage. So having started out climbing life- as, as in short, not very
0: tall. Yeah, I yeah. in I was yeah. like
1: five, five foot five, I think, when I, when I started climbing, and, and, and especially when I met Johnny. Um, and so to have been basically like a weak, five foot five person, and now to be, I mean, strong is very relative, I like the Will t-shirt. It to, with I'll her. give it to you. <laughs> I didn't get this strong doing yoga. and made me think of that. But to be someone you know who has a, a little bit of power and is quite tall, to basically uh, to look back and say, A, how, how difficult it is for, for shorties, but how thankful I was to have been a shorty at one, at one time and have to learn to climb through that because those short people that don't have much power, God, they climb so, so well, so much better than 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 I do now.
0: All the shorter clients are going to be listening to this or watching this and going, oh, this is just, this is a revelation. James has given me permission. I can be be really good here. I mean, don't get me
1: wrong. It'd be better if you were tall. (laughs) (laughs) But kind of, I think life, you've got to really try and look at all the positive things that you can find. And and, leverage it. Exactly. So yeah, you're a shorty. Make the most of it. You can be a wizard and you're light. So... That's pretty cool. Yeah, there still are some advantages. Um, and th- so Actually, in comp climbing now, if you look at it, pretty much everyone's really short.
0: Yeah, because well, the um, Mondra
1: stands out. When you exactly. see him in the lineup, yeah, he yeah, looks yeah. a
0: lot taller than most people.
1: And I think, Carol, so, Caro's idea about all oh, this is that the, the setters over the last sort of 10 years, they became so conscious of setting morpho routes for the few short people that there were. Um, basically, moves became a lot closer that now everything has become almost morpho for tall people. And so mm. it's now way better to be, to be relatively short, relatively light. Um, like you said, Andre, he's, he's definitely disadvantaged in comps, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's even worse if you look at someone like Kai, uh, Kai Leitner. Yeah, yeah. And how he cannot fit in some problems. Yeah. It's just awful. But, uh, um, okay, another question I wanted to ask you was, um, and this really, I think, I found it fascinating watching you go through this process. And I think a lot of people who looked at the media at the time were aware that you were going through this process. Um, and there's a lot of learning points to go from it as well, is that you, you essentially transitioned from a climber that was doing a lot of bouldering, and really hard cutting-edge bouldering. Like, you were properly recognised for being a very good boulderer and a very good trad climber. And then you moved to being a more, you know, cutting-edge and competent sport climber, especially on the longer stuff and the longer end of trad climbing as well. Mm-hmm. What was that process like? Because I think you went from a relatively strong and unfit climber, as in, and you really had a big learning, like steep learning curve, didn't you? Yeah. Because I remember a few of the things I heard you either say or I, I read what you, you said. There were a lot of things, yeah. And I was thinking, this guy hasn't got a clue.
1: <laughs> How's he doing this? Like, what, what, what changed it for you? Um, it was basically out of necessity to change. I think if I'd. Because you were too unfit? Yeah. yeah. So well, I think for one reason or another, if I, if I'd continued down the, the road that I was walking at that time, I would have either not become a professional climber because I would have been basically dropped by, by all my sponsors. Um, just because I, I, I couldn't keep up with the, with the, with the routes that, you know, I, I needed to be, to be climbing or I would have killed myself. Doing something, I think that's the t- the two things that would have realistically happened because you're going um,
0: shorter and harder, and therefore groundfalls were just so
1: much. Because more I, I'd realise I tr- I tried on numerous occasions to to get fit. I think at some point maybe it wasn't it wasn't super obvious, but I'd I'd started to understand that I did have this big weakness that I you know I couldn't I say I couldn't um, I hadn't at that point been able to find a way to climb longer routes. So you know even when I was when I was a relatively young climber, I'd always avoid going to places like Pembroke because yep. I just I'd heard that the roots were pumpy and I just knew that I'd basically just spend my day falling off E4s. And I was just like, well, this is not very enjoyable or cool for my kind of public facing image. So I'll just stay on the gritstone and climb climb really scary roots. And at some point it got to the point where I was we i, j- I joked earlier that I'd I really loved going bouldering and at some point climbing these hard routes became kind of like just a currency for, for, for sponsors and it, it's not 100% true, but it was definitely easier for me to climb, to climb a hard, dangerous route than it was to gain recognition doing something else. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely, I found myself in this kind of cycle, whether it was uh, conscious or, or not. Of going bouldering for a few years, having plenty of fun, doing some fairly hard boulders, but there were plenty of other people out there at the time doing doing hard boulders too, and then coming back to the to the peak, climbing some some hard routes, getting some some media out of it, and then going away and going bouldering again, and um, and the routes that I was doing, yeah, they they were definitely toward the more dangerous end of the spectrum, and so failure kind of was leading t- towards one outcome. And it's hard to say on the gritstone because it's so short. Like, what would actually really happen if you, if you, if you did take a bad fall off one of these supposed death routes? Like, whether it would really result in that, or whether you'd just be, be messed up. But to be honest, like, if you end up really messed up and, and kind of paraplegic, I don't know. For for, I, it's delicate to say, but for somebody that just their their entire life was based around being outside and doing these crazy things, it's it almost be Worse, I'm sure you could probably find find another way and find other things to focus on. And but it after actually, it was after I would like to have said that I'm, I managed to make this decision on my own and um and figured out a solution on my own, but it was definitely not the case. I just kind of continued on this this road, um, started working on the walk of life for, for one reason or another, mm-hmm. did this, this route took some really big risks for sure climbing it um and then for anybody that kind of follows i guess the climbing scene in the uk they, they know what happened basically I, I i climbed this route that to me felt like the hardest thing that i'd ever done i gave it this insane insane grade that didn't exist at the time great move by the way <laughs> based on i mean it's Good for PR. Yeah, looking looking <laughs> back, it was probably kind of smart, but it, it definitely didn't. It, I definitely didn't think that at the time. I was like, oh god, what have I would have done? I was such an idiot. Oh, I loved it. I thought it was great. <laughs> I thought it was a ballsy move. It was. It was. It was. It was just a really arrogant move. It was, you know, a move coming from somebody that was so focused, was so closed in their little box, their little view of the the way the world works, and completely. And able to to look outside of that and see that there is this, this much bigger picture out there, but you know we people do that. People do that, and, you and hopefully we learn from these things along the way. So I basically, got so much, so much negative um, coverage or whatever you want to call it from the from the climbing community, from 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 everybody. Uh, it was it was it was tough to deal with at the time because it's not. Like, losing, losing respect from, I guess, your peer group is one thing, but kind of losing respect for yourself is really, really hard to deal with. And after climbing the Walk of Life, it, kinda, it was really a slap in the face, um, this realisation of, oh, like, what kind of, what an arrogant knob I've basically been over the last few years. I honestly, I got to the point, climbing on, on, on Roots on the Grit, that I thought... Nothing could go wrong. Yeah, like I started to think, oh wow, like life is so good. Like, why have I been blessed with such a great life, being able to do these really hard routes? You know, everything's falling into place. It's just perfect. You know, oh, I'm just magical or something, something stupid like that. And then, boom, shot down. You a big, big, big slap in the face, or actually kicking the nuts more like. And um, it didn't help that a few other kind of slightly crappy hard to deal with things came around at the same moment but I basically found myself in a really in a really dark hole and um, did the the only thing I could think of and for sure the easiest thing was just to run away Mm. so I basically left left the UK moved out to to live in Europe Um, the official reason was that I wanted to I'd, I'd recognised at this point that I needed to get better um, physically, especially in endurance at, uh, at climbing, if I wanted any chance of kind of continuing as a as a pro climber. Um, and I decided to go to Innsbruck in Austria uh, because I looked at all the really strong competition climbers that were based in Innsbruck at the time and thought, well, that must be the place to be if I want to get really strong and fit. Um, went out there, but still with no clue what to actually do. And whether it was because of, I don't know, the depression is a really big, big, strong word, but, you know, generally not feeling super happy about climbing at that point about my kind of life in general, just ended up finding loads of other things to take my mind off of climbing, Mm. um, which was great. I think it's probably exactly what I needed. Um, It taught me to look at the world in a new way, um, to really, to understand that there's there's plenty of things that can bring you pleasure. Um, and if something is making you feel sad, then, you know, either do something about it or you can also find, find other things so that you don't necessarily need to force things. Was that when you met your wife, Caro? Just, now, just after. Okay. And so I basically ended up in Innsbruck kind of trying to become a better pro climber. Um, focusing pretty much only on going climbing in the gym and going sport climbing, but not really doing it in a very efficient way, not going bouldering, not doing trad, any trad routes, which were the things that I was naturally good at. And so I felt like the more I tried to be a better climber, the worse climber I was getting. It like you backwards at the start. So when, when I you... met Caro, and it was also partly probably to do with way too much partying and you know everything that goes along with that. But when I met Caro actually in, when would it be? early 2010 it was in Turkey I was there with the North Face so with my main sponsor on this they were calling it an expedition but it was basically like climbing holidays in, in, in Turkey um, sport climbing holidays so you know should be doing relatively hard sport routes and I had all these ideas about what I was going to do before the trip oh maybe you know nothing too hard go and do like a few 8b pluses or something which is the hardest route I climbed at, th- at that time uh, Ravensburg actually Mecca and I had, that was probably like four or five years before. And I hadn't basically really been sport climbing that much since. And I got out there and I couldn't read point seven c It was so, so bad. And I, I have to be careful saying that because 7Cs, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a really, <clears throat> like, it's a, it's a good level to be climbing for a lot of people. But you have to remember that I was supposed to be a professional climber. Well, it's expectations, personal
0: personal expectations. Exactly.
1: And when you've done something before, it's really hard to to go backwards from that. And Caro, we basically bumped into each other on that trip. And I guess the only positive thing I really take out of that trip, well, apart from meeting her, obviously, is that she clearly wasn't interested in me because I was any sort of climbing superstar. Let's just say that. I was basically falling off her warm-ups and she was putting all the quick draws in my, in my projects for me, which was great. It was actually really, really fun. And actually it was because of Caro that I kind of slowly started to find a love for climbing again. Because mm. falling off something that really should be quite easy for you, is, it's, it's tough to swallow. And it makes climbing just not that fun. But then Carol came along and she was just so exciting to, for me to be around for, for, for many, many reasons. But one of those reasons is that she was so in love with climbing. And I think I could probably see some of the emotions that I'd felt for climbing at one time and kind of wanted to feel again, but had lost along the way. And so I remember just, it didn't matter if I was falling off her warm-ups. I just loved going climbing with her because she was always so psyched and that made me really psyched. And then actually really, really quickly, just from climbing with her, I started to kind of make my way back towards my old level, Um, which in sport climbing, you know, had never been particularly impressive, but it was better than it had been a a few weeks before. And so we started to climb a lot together. Probably, I don't know, a few months went by. We were uh, living in Innsbruck together at the time. She was... Basically, training in the gym because she was still competing in World Cups at the time. Um, so you know, she had this very structured kind of um, regulated training regime. I was training. I'm saying this in inverted commas, but I was basically going out on, on the rock, trying to climb things. And I was trying to. I remember I was trying to climb an eight C at the time, a very bouldery one, so it suited my style. And I'd been trying it for a few weeks, and and I came back to the gym, and Carol was probably in maybe in like a second session of the day in the gym. I was moaning about. about how I was annoyed I'd fallen off my project again and you know all this training that I was doing just wasn't making any difference and like, why does training not work for me? And she kind of, I remember snorting like through her nose in a way that only French people really can
0: yeah.
1: and saying something like, I don't, I'm not being rude. I mean, clearly she was being rude because she's also French. Um, but you know, you're, I don't know what training you're actually talking about because from where I'm standing, you're not doing anything. You're just playing on the rock with your friends and moaning which is very British. <laughs> um, and so she, she said, you know, if you want to train, why didn't you ask me and I can help you and I can make you a plan and you can follow that plan. And, and that's, that, that will work, but you know, you have, to, you have to know that it's gonna be really painful and really boring, but if you stick with it, it'll, it'll work. It's just, it's that simple. And I was like, yeah, yeah, please. Like I've been, you don't know how many years I've been searching for this this solution. And she's like, well, you know, you've clearly not been searching very hard, because it's not <laughs> very difficult. And um and, and yeah, it really isn't very difficult. You've just gotta I think use a little bit of science, apply some structure to that, trust the person that's telling you what to do, which I think is probably one of the main things, mm. and 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 the the methods will will see a result. I think the big problem I'd had in, in training in the, the past was that I'd read about all these different types of training that you could do i'd try one and after like two weeks of not seeing any particular results i'd switch and i'd try something different and i just—I never left the time for it to actually actually work and so never really saw any of the benefits and just got frustrated and i think it's one of the things that you notice you
0: you kind of get further down in your career as a climber is how much patience you lacked yeah. as a younger climber <laughs> yeah and you want to be able to Give that patience to your younger self and go. Yeah. Just give it more time. You're yeah. doing the right thing. It's Just,
1: good. Just stick, stick with, with it. it.
0: <laughs> but you want it so bad, yeah. so fast early on when you've got, you know, ten out of ten enthusiasm.
1: Yeah, it's kind of one of the reasons why now we're doing bits and bobs with with some of the younger athletes in like the various brands that we work with, and it's so it's so cool working with them. And and I guess that's probably one of the reasons that we like doing it much so much because you can see they've got these incredible bodies that are just you know waiting to do all these amazing things but there's so many things that they just don't know yet either Mm. with training or with other things and if you could just somehow pass on this knowledge that you've learned um like and and give it to them right now and save them 10 years of self-discovery god it'd be they'd be so good yeah yeah but
0: what what would you go back and tell yourself if you could go back now and go back to Jay, let, let's say you've just done Equilibrium. Yeah. So you've already done you know, pretty well and you've got to 19 years old. Yeah. And right now you could go out, sit down half an hour and impart a few pieces of wisdom to that, that younger climber. What do you get them doing?
1: So it's, it's, it's a difficult question because so many of the things that I did kind of define the person that I've become today. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's hard to know what, what you should get rid of. <laughs> Because who knows? Like maybe that really awkward thing that you went through that was super painful or just you know not particularly enjoyable actually really defined the path that you were going to take, and you wouldn't be here, and I'd be I don't know working in McDonald's or something now. It's a good way of looking at. it. But if if I could, I think the 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 most important thing that I had to learn uh, with my climbing was that don't box yourself in to be like this one trick pony. It's really good to play to your strengths. And I still definitely do that to this day, but you've got to learn other, other things out there because the chance that you're going to be able to go through life, just climbing the things that suit you. It's, it's, it's really small. And if you can do it, you're going to be so limited. There's so many amazing things to discover out there. Um, and so I would say to young James it's just climbed equilibrium, go to the mountains, go start doing some long, long trad routes. And with that, you probably already pick up some kind of fitness and your body might already start to learn how to climb when it's a little bit tired, instead of being only able to function in this very, very specific moment where everything is fresh and perfect and and so controlled. Mm And go do more on sites, like learn, learn more about that because even to this day, that's still a huge weakness of mine. Um, and learn, either learn or have faith in somebody that knows already about, about training methods and spend a bit of time, not all of your time, because it's, I think it's very easy for people to get really sucked into training for training's sake, but yeah. spend a bit of time just oiling the machine that is your, your body, because I saw this after I'd got a little bit of sport fitness and then went back to places like Pembroke, it doesn't just mean that you climb harder. It means that you have so much more fun on the routes because you're not terrified that one little mistake is going to mean the end of, of, of life as you know it because you've always got that. You know you've got more in the tank and you know how to deal with with awkward situations. And um, yeah, so that's that's probably the advice that I would, I would give to myself. Okay, well, um, I'm going
0: gonna, I'm gonna to ask you one, or to go on to one last kind of, final theme for for today which okay. I, which i think uh is yeah kind of interesting to talk about and um and i think you've got some really good perspectives on this And i know we've talked a little bit about it before
1: i'm and interested that's, to hear what this is
0: <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's, it's around your i guess your how you feel that when you when you're working at the your own personal limit or the person or the limit of the you know the climbing culture or the area yeah how does opinions and uh the status quo around grades and difficulty of repeats and the style in which things done how does that impact climbing or you with your own climbing does it empower you does it push you back does it hold you back back areas yeah what what, what are you sort of because you will have seen this a lot in different parts of the world and different routes
1: i think i think it can go it can go in both ways for sure it's it's so much easier to to make progression for yourself when you have someone to follow or when you have a community to follow um and i saw this I saw this in places like like in innsbruck in in the old Tivoli gym um you had you know the 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 real kind of champions of the Austrian climbing scene who were in the gym on a daily basis and then below them you had this kind of tiered system of all of the you know uh they're kind of close friends that were almost as good, but not quite, and then before below that, all like the hopefuls that were that were trying to to follow and emulate the people above them and below that, like the children just getting into it, but from a very early age, seeing all this these amazing climbers and but the exact the way that they get to the very top, everything is kind of mapped out for them, so they almost don't really have to question anything themselves or learn too much, they just have to follow what other people are doing, and that can be. Because they can That's, see it on a daily basis. Exactly. It's always in front And of that their can be step. so super efficient. But at the same time, I can also see how it can be very, very limiting um, if everybody in one area has the same sort of ideas about you know the the limits of performance. How if you come to that place as an outsider, you can actually make pretty impressive progress or do pretty crazy unexpected things simply because you're not limited by the knowledge of what is previously what's previously been done and thus possible um and i think you can see that on places like like the gritstone um how you know we've things haven't really progressed that much since the since the late 90s in terms of what people are climbing climbing on the grit these days uh when you think about you know the, the grit routes that those guys were climbing in in hard grit and the level that they were climbing on on sport at the time. I mean, obviously, there were a few exceptions, people like Ben and Jerry, who, you know, had already climbed really hard sport mm. routes. But the majority of people in that film, especially people like Seb, you know, they were they were climbing routes on the grit. They were pretty much at the limit of what they were climbing on bolts at the time. And try to th- imagine somebody basically climbing, like, a bold 9A on the gritstone nowadays, it would be just insane. Like the roots that they did in, in hard grit are still newsworthy to a certain extent nowadays, and that's mm. that's that's pretty nuts because I really think we're we're we kind of a little bit held back by it's not just the gritstone, it's it's like I think psychology in general and, and in the kind of the way that danger interacts with climbing performance. But you do see sometimes foreign climbers come onto the grit and just They'll just like bash out like a few E7s and E8s really, really quickly. And all the locals are like, including me, are like, wow, what just happened there? That's, that's not a route that you should be able to climb at this time of year. Or that's not a route that you're just going on site. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because everybody before us has, has done it in winter and has top roped it and told us it's dangerous. But actually, maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, you can climb grit when the conditions aren't perfect and you can Climb these dangerous routes because actually a groundfall isn't guaranteed from the from the crux or so that ropey bit of gear is actually probably a, okay. So that's super that's super interesting and I guess you can probably apply like it's the same kind of logic or at least problems that apply to doing first ascents when you and and big long projects when you really you get stuck into a project of your own like you kind of you create the reality around that project and that can be for good or for bad. Um, but whatever it is, you're basically stuck with that. It's very, very hard to take a step back and objectively look at the situation and reanalyze things, whereas you get somebody new coming in, suddenly they they find a new hold or a new way to hold it, or they just tell you that, oh, this bit that you're really worried about, like it's actually kind of chilled. And I saw that game with with Tribe with you know, Jacopo, it must have been such a hard thing for him to go through those years of, of trying the thing, not even having done all the moves on it, not even knowing if this thing is possible, just continuously pushing forward, like banging his head against the wall, hoping and praying that one day it might all work. And so clearly you know, when people look at it and say, wow, you know, how, how did Jacopo take all this time to do this route? And, and James comes along and managed to do it in, in a couple of weeks, but it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like I, look, I I went to that route knowing that the route was totally possible, that all the moves have been done, I had videos to watch, I knew about the gear, I got the luxury of climbing on it with another amazingly talented climber, with Yeni, who basically, actually ended up pushing me to get on the lead, if, if Yerni hadn't been there, I think I would've probably taken a lot longer to get on the lead, yeah. um, but with him there saying, oh, I think it's, I think it's safe, I'll say, actually, yeah, it probably is safe, we should just start trying it on the lead, and then, it's just the, you, you kind of knock the barriers down and realize that these big monsters that you kind of create there, they're very much in your head. So it's 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 a delicate balance to find, I think. But yeah. I don't really have an answer how to move forward from that, but just something to be no, aware I, well, of. I'm,
0: I'm never even quite sure if it's something that you can that you can move forward from or that should change. It's yeah. just that I think it's really interesting to be aware of it and understanding like. Particularly for you know any of us that are involved with projecting is to understand that that whole projecting thing is such an all-encompassing yes. thing, and you're inside your bubble, and you, 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 because you have to, there's so much complexity to complexity to it, you start trying to control for all these different elements in it, yep. and you become quite fixed in your mindset because mm-hmm. you need to you need to fix for this, you need to fix for this, you need, you have all these things that are fixed because you're dealing with. The limits of your own performance so you exactly. can't have too many moving variables yeah. and of course that is a total you know blind spot in your ability to be really objective after a while mm-hmm. and so you get you can get really stuck with it and it's as long as we're aware that that's what happens don't be either upset when you get the grades wrong yeah. or you know you have a nightmare and something takes two seasons when really it could have taken you two weeks if you'd allow someone else to come in and have an input <laughs> you know it's, it's just being aware that that's that's how the game works because for sure. the psychology is so important
1: yeah the psych exactly the psychology is so important the the state of your own mind is it's hard to put figures on it but for me it's a, mm. it's 50 of the of the game I, yeah. I can be
0: especially at your own personal limit yeah i think yeah like i think uh, uh and what's kind of what i always think is interesting and explained to other people who are still not approaching their limit is to remind them that that mental game the psychology bit is probably a smaller portion further down the curve Sure, but it becomes increasingly important to when you get close to your limit and that's where you want to put more energy into it exactly because people can go through 10 years of progression and they're really focused on their technique and their training for example and they do amazing on that and they get really drummed into this thing works training works technique works and they get to their limit. And they've literally done, you know, no development on their mental game at all. And they don't want to tackle it because it feels foreign. They're not very tested with it. They feel really rusty in it. But that's where they need to put, you know, 90% of their effort now.
1: And what I I find really, really interesting is that there's different types of, let's call it the the mental game. So I would probably say that from my experience climbing dangerous routes on the gritstone as as a kid, I developed like a fairly strong head when it comes to dealing with the pressure of, of danger mm. but that that capability to deal with that pressure has nothing to do with the professor uh, dealing with the pressure of let 's say like performance anxiety and dealing with you know potential failure it 's really funny I, I, I would have thought that okay if you 're strong mentally at this you 're strong mentally at everything, but it's very much so the different specific things that you 've learned along the way and they don 't necessarily correlate or even link up with one another. So I spent the last six, seven, eight years probably. Uh, yeah, 2012 is when I first started working on this with Caro. Really trying to, to work on my kind of performance anxiety when it comes to sport climbing. And dealing with that weird pressure of, of failing that you see when you're making hard red points where you'll basically, you'll go one move higher every time and there's for sure there's some physiological reasons that that happens but there's no reason that when you do that one move suddenly you get instantly pumped and it's because you know you've you, you you're getting close to the, to the to the top you're getting close you're getting excited but at the same time you get suddenly you get worried and all these things start flooding into the system and confusing things and then the, the pump arrives and so it's taken a long long time and a lot of different. Uh, mental tactics to get through that visualization being the most successful one that I've worked on and still I've got so so far to go with it Mm. whereas the kind of pressure of I think dealing with and this goes back to what we were talking about learning to climb on the grit and all the kind of weird balancey technical side of it the things that you learn as a youngster I think really stay with you so even though I've not climbed a, a dangerous route for I don't know how many, a really dangerous route for years and years and years. I feel like I've still got that mental strength in that style to be able to just switch back into it if I want to. Whereas I've been sport climbing now regularly for the last six or seven years, and I still feel like I'm kind of a punter when it comes to really like controlling my own emotions in a hard, in a hard route. Yeah. It's only just getting there now. Thanks, thanks to Arthur. I think that that really helped me. And let's not start talking about the subject because we'll be here for another hour. <sighs> oh, no, but yeah. basically, becoming yeah, becoming a father and either having Arthur there at the crag to, pl- to, ha- to play with, or just realizing that there's plenty of other things out there in the world that away from climbing has, has definitely helped a lot with with that. So maybe we can leave it this discussion on the fact that if. If you're really struggling with your red points, then just have a kid. Deal with the sleepless nights, and then it's going to be so easy after that. <laughs> <laughs> guaranteed. Guaranteed. That's a great ending. I'm going to start selling, <laughs> selling that. Yeah. I personally don't recommend that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we have different opinions on this kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. No, um, yeah, I think you know, me and you could chat for a long time on this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, definitely. And, uh, but you know, uh, thanks so much for. Coming on, you know, for this interview and, and podcast and and stuff for the YouTube audience. Um, it's been yeah, be, like absolute pleasure. chatting oh, Thanks to you for about inviting the
1: stuff. me. It's been it's been really fun. I have no idea how long we were talking for. Probably way too long. It's never it's never too long. too no, they're, they're, they're loving it though. <laughs> we're all good. No, it's <laughs> been it's been really cool.
0: Last thing that um, uh, is always good to do though is um, for anyone listening or watching, yeah. uh, where can they find the stuff that you are doing? Uh, you and Caro, um, I guess you're, you're on Instagram. It's super easy, like, yeah. like, where, Where's the main if place just, to connect with you? If
1: you just look for Once Upon a Climb, that's basically, we, we have the same uh, handle over all the social media channels. And so Once Upon a Climb. Once Upon a Climb, yeah. Yep. It's the website, Instagram, Facebook. Don't really use that anymore. Um, pretty much everything. YouTube, it's all on there. Yeah. Oh, I didn't you even... could go on YouTube and watch some of my videos. That'd be great. Yeah, I didn't even know, you didn't you had even know we had channel. a YouTube channel. Oh. Go and watch on the YouTube
0: channel. Subscribe to their channel as yeah. well.
1: We even did a vlog for a year. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. I never knew that. 50, 56 videos, 56 vlogs you have to, the pleasure of going to <laughs> binge upon. <laughs> there you go. Yeah.
0: Well, um, yeah, I hope for everyone has enjoyed watching or listening to this. And um, if you're a podcast listener, it would be great if you could leave us a review. Um, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, as we've just um, started releasing this podcast. That always helps us. And otherwise, um, thank you to James, and we will see you no, again. thank you to, to you guys. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll see you again very soon.